You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 18 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're happy to welcome back Father Jonathan Loop, the principal of Immaculate Conception Academy in Post Falls, Idaho, to discuss the second part of the preparations for the Council. Last time, we saw the good preparations that were done, and caused many, including Archbishop Lefebvre, to be very optimistic about the Council. Today, we'll see the -the behind-the-scenes work that was carried out by the Liberal Council Fathers before the Council even started. This would have disastrous effects for the entire Council and the intervening years of the post-conciliar Church. If you'd like to learn more about the series we're doing on the crisis in the Church, or go back and revisit our previous 17 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Father Loop. Welcome to the SSPX podcast and our second session. I guess that's a good word to use in this context, Father. Uh, on Fair the enough. Uh, preparatory period of the Second Vatican Council and welcoming Father Loop again. Hello, Father. How are you today? I'm doing very well. And yourself, Andrew? Uh, doing fairly well. It's warming up down here in Phoenix, which is not a huge surprise, but... Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so up in the nineties. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we ended last episode with um, the official convocation. We just briefly started talking about that—the convocation of the uh, of all of the bishops to come to the Second Vatican Council. This was done with the papal bull, I believe you said, Humane Salutis. Salutis, on, yes. Uh, December twenty fifth, nineteen sixty one, and this is going to be December nineteen sixty one about 10 months before the actual start of the Second Vatican Council. And where we left off last week was uh, talking about there's all this great preparatory work that was done, uh, and now the underground work is going to be starting, and we're going to be focusing on that a little bit more today. So could you lead us into that a little bit, Father? For sure. Yeah, like you just mentioned, we have this official announcement and calling forth of all the bishops of the world that's issued by John the 23rd and the end of 1961. And we kind of left off last time highlighting a passage from that, which in a way uh, indicated the very possibly good direction the council could have gone. There is this vision of a world that's really in a crisis and needs Uh, let's say, direction from the church, needs counsel from the church, and needs correction from the church. And that's where the official and formal preparation for the council seemed to be going, to give that needed help to the church. But at the same time, as you mentioned, there was this current, uh, an underground current, going in the opposite direction, ultimately, that did not see that the world truly needed the correction, but rather the church herself needed in some ways to change her approach to the world. And in this context, it might be interesting as we get into this to read a comment from Father Eve Congar, who would later be a expert at the council, who was one of these liberal and progressive theologians, who contributed to that, so to speak, aggiornamento or updating in the church. And he makes this comment while uh, remarking or speaking of Father Ralph Vilkin's book, The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. Um, And Father Vilkin, for his part, includes this in his introduction to a later edition of the work. So Father Kungar says, Father Vilkin was remarkably well informed, and his report which shows the unfolding of the entire council is full of precise details. In short, the Rhine was in reality that broad current of vigorous Catholic theology and pastoral science, which had got underway in the early 1950s, and with regard to liturgical matters and biblical sources, even earlier than that. So, What Father Congar is stating there is that, in reality, what we see happening at the Council, and which I'm sure will be explored in greater detail later on, was itself nothing other than the fruit of a lot of work of theologians, and in fact of bishops, um, mainly, let's say, in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany, that had been growing in that decade leading up to the Second Vatican Council. 
and which had, in many instances, not been corrected by bishops or even fostered by them. That's with having said that, I'd like to go back briefly to the convocation that he, the the bull humani salutis, because while at the same time he does give that very, we may say, incisive analysis of the world in his day, he mixes in in that document a great deal of what would seem to be unfounded optimism. So he says, for example, about the world in general. Indeed, making our own Jesus' recommendation that we learn to read or discern the signs of the times, it seems to us that we can make out in the midst of so much darkness more than a few indications that enables us to have hope for the fate of the church and of humanity. You know, mm-hmm. and maybe just a comment about the political situation at that moment. This is in December of 1961. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners might be very well aware that's two months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you right. where the world stood on the brink of nuclear war. And just were a few years before the escalation of uh, the United States and several um, other allies in Vietnam, fighting against the efforts of the communists, the uh, the Ho Chi Minh and his followers, supported by the USSR, to impose a communist regime on the remainder of Vietnam. And at the same time, um, that growth of communism in Africa, in uh, Central America, in South America, this godless and, uh, let's say, materialistic um, system that is seemingly at that moment on the upswing, even if it did suffer a bit of a humiliation, and Khrushchev uh, suffering a bit of a humiliation by having to withdraw the missiles from Cuba. Uh, the overall picture, though, is one of a healthy and aggressive and expanding communism, which is opposed to the church. Right. You know, so there's that. And again, a lot of these theologians that were, you know, leading up to the council that we'll talk about a little bit, um, or like someone like Henri de Lubac that we just saw a few weeks ago, you know, they too share in that optimism. Then the Pope speaks about the church. And he says that, thus, if the, if the world seems to have changed profoundly, the Christian community has also in great part been transformed and renewed. That is, it has been strengthened in its social unity, reinvigorated intellectually and interiorly purified. It is ready for any trial. Hmm. Now, it's an interesting comment, and you know, it might be in some levels true to say about at least the surface appearance of the church in a number of areas at that time. So, for example, in the United States, the church had been expanding rather explosively, um, having a great deal of ordination, seeing a flourishing of diocesan priestly vocations, of religious priestly vocations, and uh, souls entering the uh, religious life. You know, at the apex, the height of in the United States, you had you know, about sixty thousand priests working throughout the country. Uh, a comparison, just briefly, like there's about forty-five thousand currently, um, and one hundred eighty thousand. Uh, sisters in hospitals, teaching in schools, and stuff like that. Whereas now we have maybe, maybe 40,000 sisters in the United States. So, I mean, you have a certain, on the surface, flourishing there. At the same time, you have a similar situation in Africa. But in Europe and in much of South America, that really wasn't the case. You actually had a, you might say, a crisis of confidence in the church more than anything else. And also along those lines, I'd like to comment on a small thing from Cardinal Montini in Milan that's uh, right at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, or right when, I should say, uh, John Twenty-Third is elected. And he makes the comment, so he writes, Cardinal Montini, so who will be Paul VI, writes a letter to John Twenty-Third when he's elected, to discuss his take on the situation in his diocese. So Cardinal Montini writes that the number of adversaries of the name of God seems to be increasing and strengthening itself every day. Laicism and anti-clericalism is returning very strongly into fashion. And the license in 
people's moral lives, especially in the press and in movies, is becoming large, insolent, and without any limit. And there is, yes, and he goes on to comment that the situation in his diocese, in addition to that general way, let's say with respect to ordinations or um, you know, just the practice of religion, was really unfortunate. So it comments that in 1955, the Diocese of Milan, which was the largest and remains the largest in Italy, had 89 ordinations. Not bad. Okay, it'd be mm-hmm. nice if the society could have 89 ordinations <laughs> one year. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. Five years later, that was down to 13. Wow. You know, yeah, it was just a complete collapse. So, and part of it is just this lack of confidence on the part of the Christians at the time before this onslaught of ideas, whether it be communism, which you have to understand in Italy at the time, communism almost, you know, in, in, in the wake of the Second World War, communism almost succeeded, or the Communist Party almost succeeded in taking over Italian national politics. And so a lot of Catholics are very influenced by that. The confidence that John XXIII presents seems very out of place in a way. I was just going to ask, it, it, that doesn't seem to add up. I mean, you're, you're saying that, or John XXIII said, you know, the, the church has been strengthened in its social unity, re- reinvigorated intellectually, interiorly purified in how? I mean, in, in, in this sense with, you know, the boots on the ground, uh, information coming from Archbishop Lefebvre and Toul and Cardinal Montini at that time in Milan, there was not this, there's really not room for optimism. In a way, that's true. And I think part of it, and that goes into, I think, um, perhaps a more of what we could say easily about the interior life of John Twenty-Third. but it would seem that he's just uh, unduly optimistic for whatever okay. reason. And in part, I think, kind of a desire to, to put the best light on it, to see the best in everyone. Archbishop Lefebvre made a comment, uh, or perhaps I can turn that around, uh, there was one person who made a comment about Benedict XVI, and he said that Benedict XVI seems to have a very, let's say, traditional heart. You know, very attracted to the the Latin Mass because of, let's say, his memories as a young priest and mm-hmm. as a child, and it seemed like it really struck him. And yet his head was very much, modern, let's say, affected by modernist ideas, his way of looking at reality intellectually. Um, was contrary to a traditional and sound uh, philosophic training. Archbishop Lefebvre flipped that on its head for John the Twenty Third, and he said he seems as though in his head he's traditional, and in some of his writings, or like uh, we commented a little bit about that speech that he gave at the end of the Roman Senate la- in yeah. our last episode. And he, what you hear is in fact rather traditional. But his heart, Archbishop Lefebvre says, seems to be fairly liberal and leading in this direction of, let's say, willing to be uh, friends with all at all costs, it seems. Um, and we'll see that a little bit when we kind of come back to that. And in fact, that leads to the next point, I, I suppose, because in the same convocation, he expresses this really unfounded optimism about other religions and whether it be uh, especially other Christians. And he says that furthermore, at a time of generous and growing efforts being undertaken in various areas to reconstitute that visible unity of all Christians, which corresponds to the will of the divine Redeemer, it is quite natural that the forthcoming counts provide the premises of doctrinal clarity and of mutual charity that will make even more alive in our separated brethren the desire for return to unity and will smooth the way to it. In other words... Again, going back to that, wanting to see the best. You know, these all these right. other Christians, they want to return to the church. And they're really, and we could just be in a very colloquial way, they're really good guys. You know, we just want right. to get along. We can figure that out if we just, you know, work hard enough. And even there, though, it's, it's, it's ambiguous. You know, because, you know, as Pius XI wrote in his Encyclical Martalium Animos, Catholics can't take part in these ecumenical prayer services because it implies that the visible unity has, in fact, been lost. And has to, to, if we want to use the word that John the Twenty Third used, re- be reconstituted, made anew. I don't know if this is too harsh to say about John the Twenty Third, but he comes off as almost naive in the way that he views people. Like, oh, at, at their heart, they're all good. I mean, they're they're fine. I mean, 
I know he's that's not probably, saying that, but that's kind of what he's, that's the impression he's giving. Yeah, you can certainly, at the very least, you can understand why people would take that yeah. and how that could be um, used as fuel for a lot of these theologians that we're talking about and who more or less agree with that in a more principled way to say, this is what we need to keep moving in our directions and we'll have his support, which in the end, effectively, they do. He, he almost ends that convocation by this invitation to those non-Catholic brethren, as he calls them. He speaks about the prayers that are being offered for the success of the coming council. And then he adds, to this chorus of prayers, we also invite all Christians of churches separated from Rome, so that the council may also be to their advantage. Again, it's just very ambiguous, and it almost seems to imply that they, as bodies, have prayers which are intrinsically pleasing to God and can draw down benefits. You know, you could also, on the flip side, say, well, you know, maybe just disposing them to receive the grace to return to the faith, but it doesn't seem to be that. Now, here, I think maybe it'd be good to transition precisely what I just mentioned, which is that secretariat for the unity of Christians. Now, this is going to be, we mentioned that very briefly last time, because it was something that was founded at the same time that the Central Preparatory Commission was founded. Uh, in other words, in June of 1960. But it's an entirely novel institution, really. And perhaps as a lead into that, it might be of interest to return once again to Vatican I and to, to read some selections that that were taken from the letter that Pius IX wrote to Protestants. Again, we said, we said last time that he wrote a letter directed towards the Orthodox to invite them to be present as observers at the council because they truly were bishops, uh, they had orders, and it might even be the case where they could participate in the sense of being on um, commissions like what happened at the Council of Florence in the 1400s, which led to the actual reconciliation of some of those bishops at that time. But the letter that he writes to the Protestants is quite different. In it, he, he invites them, not unsurprisingly, to return to the Catholic Church. It's his duty as the pastor of souls. It's like, look, I apologize, but you all are outside the Ark of Salvation, so you might want to return. Right. But then he goes on and says that a careful examination would prove that not one of their groups, or all of them together, quote, constitute and are in any way that one Catholic church which Jesus Christ founded, constituted, and willed to be. Nor can these groups in any way be called a member or a part of this church, as long as they are visibly separated from Catholic unity. Uh, this is, that, that is cited by Father Vilkin in his book, The Rhinefloes and the Tiber. And he says, this letter, too, proved offensive and achieved very little, <laughs> which on a certain level, it's not unsurprising. I mean, right. you know, the, you're the uh, full Archbishop of Canterbury and you receive that letter. It's like, oh, all right, very good. So, yeah, yeah exactly. I'll, I'll put that in the circular uh, uh, file. You know, so there's something to that. But then, um, as I pointed out, John the 23rd is going to adopt a very, very different attitude. And one, like I said, that seems to be founded, at the very least, that one could say, in this, um, if, if you want to put it, perhaps naive optimism about the state of the situation. Now, Father Vilken goes on, and he says that, so the religious climate in the world of John the Twenty-Third was very different from that of it was in the days of Pius IX. And I, you have to understand, Father Vilkin's a bit of a liberal, so he's going to be ascribing this more to, you know, the, the attitude um, of the world in general, as opposed to the, the principles at, at the stake. He says, In the intervening years, the ecumenical movement for the promotion of Christian unity had taken firm hold of Christian communities around the world. And many factors had contributed to this. For example, one was biblical research 
which brought together Protestants, Anglican, Orthodox, and Catholic scholars. And maybe just go back to that quote we began with Father Congar, who explicitly mentions biblical scholarship as being one of these early, let's say, uh, currents um, that led, that was the Rhine leading into the Tiber. Then Father Vilken says, Next comes the World Council of Churches, founded specifically to promote Christian fellowship in all possible fields. Now up until, let's say, the 1960s, the Catholic Church said we will have nothing to do with this organization because it's basically a, a very, very cheap representation of what we already are, effectively. But in the 1960s, the Secretariat of Christian Unity will send members there. Now, he goes on. So, so Pope John Twenty-Third sets up this secretariat in order to try to draw on these currents that Father Vilken is talking about. And he puts as its head Father, or well, Cardinal Augustine Bea, who mm. is an interesting character in some respects. He's a great biblical scholar in the sense that he's very learned, um, and that's not always a good thing. Um, but he, he was certainly very accomplished. He was trusted a great deal, perhaps unfortunately, by Pius XII, who had him as his personal confessor, and who also entrusted him with the task of re-producing um, a new translation of the Psalms. Um, mm. So for any, let's say, our priestly listeners who've ever had to deal with the Psalms, because they actually redid the Psalter of the Breviary with that updated trans, uh, translation. And um, for anyone who is familiar with the Vulgate translation of the Psalms, what he did is perhaps more technically correct classically, but it's very difficult to get used to in the Psalms. Anyways, that's an aside. Um, but he was chosen by John the Twenty-Third to head this new secretariat. And he's going to be very, very energetic in many ways. And he has as his uh, secretary a Dutchman named John Villebron, who's later going to replace him as the secretary of this commission, and who helps him a great deal. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to have a lot of contacts with non-Christian organizations, and not merely, uh, let's say, non-Catholic, quote-unquote, Christians. But that's obviously where their main focus is initially. And so um, they're going to go out of their way to invite, to be representatives at the council, uh, hosts of people and representatives from different, both Protestant organizations and then Orthodox communities. And they get about 50 to come at the first, account, or first session. And not only that, but they're also soliciting from them their opinions that what they would like to see from the council. Uh, Father Vilken talks a great deal about a Professor Coleman, who uh, is a Methodist and gives a lot of commentary about how much they were made to feel a part of the proceedings of the council by being, let's say, and this is getting a little into the council itself, but it was prepared, the ground was prepared beforehand by that uh, spirit and that outlook. They were given documents to read before they were presented to the General Assembly, they were invited, solicited for comments. They were allowed access to all the bishops. You know, it's just, they were very much, while not voting members nor official uh, members of the council, they made their presence felt. And that's all due to all this work before the council by uh, Cardinal Bay and his group. I mean, in, in short, it's, it's a total departure from what we saw at the first Vatican Council Correct. and what, what Pius IX did. It was... Correct. You are not involved, and I'm going to let you know that the council is happening just out of a uh, courtesy. Uh, mm -hmm. But now you're not a voting member, but a full-fledged, you know, you're involved. Yeah, definitely involved. No yeah. official capacity, but definitely involved and made to feel involved. Right. And again, that was the perspective from which they were invited. Um, and like I said, it wasn't merely, uh, let's say, the connection with these non-Catholic Christians. They also reached out more surreptitiously to non-Christians. So mm -hmm. there's a great little passage in the Catechism of the Crisis, which is an interesting work to read, a little bit, a little difficult work to read, I would say, but still interesting, where you have uh, quoted there in the chapter that's dedicated to the Second Vatican Council, a passage from a Jew named Lazar Landau, 
in, this is just a fascinating passage. So he comments that on a foggy, frigid winter's evening in 1962 and 63, I attended an extraordinary event at the Strasbourg Community Center for Peace. The Jewish directors secretly received a papal delegate in the basement. At the conclusion of the Sabbath, we were about a dozen to welcome a Dominican dressed in white, the Reverend Father Yves Congar, tasked by Cardinal Bea in John XXIII's name with asking us at the threshold of the council what we expected of the Catholic Church. The Jews, for nearly 20 centuries kept on the margin of Christian society, often treated as inferiors, enemies, and deicide, asked for their complete rehabilitation. As direct descendants of Abraham, whence came Christianity, they asked to be considered as brothers, partners of equal dignity of the Christian Church. The white-robed messenger, not wearing any symbol or ornament, returned to Rome, the bearer of the innumerable requests that reinforced our own people. After difficult debates, the Council did justice to our wishes. The Declaration Nostri Aetate constituted, Father Congar and the other three drafters of the text confirmed it to me, a veritable revolution in the Church's doctrine on the Jews. Within a few years, sermons and catechisms had changed. Since the secret visit of Father Congar to a hidden room of a synagogue on a cold winter's night, the doctrine of the Church had indeed undergone a total mutation. So again, so Father Congar is acting there as representative of Cardinal Bay of the Secretariat. And, and we'll come back to that because, well, actually, we'll, that leads into the kind of way into the next point. It's, uh, it's fascinating, though, Father, because it's, it's I think, I think as, as modern Catholics, we're kind of used to this dialogue with other religions. That's almost normal to us now. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the time, you can tell from his writing um, that he was surprised by, by this overture from the Catholic Church to mm -hmm. the Jewish religion. Uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to kind of figure out what that would mean. It's almost like if, if you're running a, a business and you're having, you know, a high level meeting with all the other executives and you reach out to the competing business or another business that has nothing to do with it and say, what do you want us to talk about at this meeting? Mm -hmm. It's not. No, you, you discuss what's good for your business on mm -hmm. a purely secular level. I mean, that's, that's a horrible analogy, probably. But I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around. This is this is weird. <laughs> you know, it is. It's, it's, I mean, I think you're correct in the, making the observation that, you know, we now 60 years later, unfortunately, are so um, used to these kinds of interactions that it's really taken the sting out of them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, at the moment that these were initially occurring, it was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, not just with, of course, the Jews, but even with the Protestants. Right. You know, you, uh, you have some of these, uh, someone like Father Congar speaking very, very, in a laudatory fashion of Luther, you know, which, again, we now kind of see is not unsurprising. But, well, anyways, yeah. Yeah. We'll come back to the, the, the thread here. <laughs> um, so anyways, as I said, the, the Secretariat is not only, let's say, having these contacts with these non-Catholics and making a point of inviting them, asking, soliciting their opinions on how to approach things in the council, but it's also been made, it's in a way integrated into the, um, the preparations, the official preparations of the church, but again, in a very surreptitious manner. So let's say Archbishop Lefebvre, who, if, if you recall, was a member of that separate central preparatory commission. So he was involved in all the general sessions where you had about 100 uh, cardinals, bishops, uh, experts, what have you, there to consider the work of the subcommissions. And in that capacity, he witnessed some of these machinations, and there's really no better word for that, of uh, especially Cardinal Bea, to, to try to change the orientation of a number of documents that have been prepared, etc. So the normal uh, way of preparing a document was that you would have a commission, a subcommission, that had a certain competence. Um, for example, there's a subcommission on the liturgy. And in fact, that was uh, one of the only subcommissions that was dominated by progressives. And that'll have its importance later on. Um, 
but there is one, uh, the main one was the Theological Commission, which is overseen, which is presided on by Cardinal Ottaviani, the head of the Holy Office at the time. And now, um, officially, the Secretariat of Promoting Christian Unity or of, uh, of Christian Unity did not have an official position there. But Cardinal Bea started pushing his members to produce texts that could then perhaps be integrated and used. And so, for example, as early as 1960, so they began in November of 1960, you had begun preparations for a document to, to become a schema at the Council on Religious Liberty. Now, that obviously involves theological principles. Is in, in other words, something that belonged precisely to the um, to the theological commission, and Cardinal Bea several times asked Cardinal Ottaviani effectively to try to force his hand. Hey. Let's form a mixed commission to study this question. Cardinal Ottaviani kept saying, "No, no, you don't have any say in this. Right. This is a theological principle." Cardinal Ottaviani continually refuses to do that, simply because, yeah, within reason, it's not a matter that pertains to the, the Secretary of Promoting Christian Unity. <clears throat> so what happens is that Cardinal Bea, in one way or another, makes an approach in advance to John the Twenty-Third, and basically presents the situation to him. And John the Twenty-Third is like, oh, all right. Well, yeah, why don't you just present that document, um, in fact, uh, without even having to worry about going to the Theological Commission. Just present uh -huh. it to the Central Preparatory Commission. And so he basically oversteps or overrides Cardinal Ottaviani's refusal to consider it, which would have prevented this document from coming to light. As a very random aside, that original document on religious liberty that was prepared by that was overseen by Bishop Charrier, who... Uh -huh about 10 years later, would be the one who would sign the erection of the Society of St. Pius X as uh, Bishop of Fribourg. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. So, so in, so Cardinal Bay wants to, just to, just to kind of summarize, make sure I have this right. Cardinal Bay yeah. wants to get involved in a commission that he has no right or really responsibility for. He's getting involved in a theological commission or wants to, you know, put his own opinion into it. And go ahead. Sorry, maybe the way to look at that is he wants to make a document touching on a subject that has principles which are theological in nature and therefore belong to the theological commission. Okay, so what but, he's doing overlaps on what the theological exactly. commission should be doing, and so he really shouldn't be touching that document at all. Correct. Okay, Correct. And, and so the, he goes to Cardinal uh, Ottaviani and says hey, this is touching on your territory. Let's work together on this. Cardinal Taviani says, no, this is my job. Yep. <laughs> Go away. And so Cardinal Bea, to use kind of the colloquial terms, goes and complains to Pope John the Twenty Third, um, And so he's willing to say, oh, yeah, why don't you just present it to the whole Central Preparatory Commission? So the and whole kind of body destroys the chain of command and yep. just throws it in. Okay. Correct. So and now we see how this is kind of kind of working where... If everyone had kind of stayed in their lanes, probably much less damage would have happened. Correct. And it's interesting, too, because the, the end result of that is, so that document of Cardinal Bea was, in the end, presented to the Central Preparatory Commission, and it led to what Archbishop Lefebvre described as this really dramatic confrontation between Cardinal Ottaviani and Cardinal Bea. I mean, on the one hand, you might say that you have that wounded feelings, not unsurprisingly so, on the part of Cardinal Taviani, but more than that, the fact that you have this really profound difference of principles that are being all of a sudden exposed. Because you have the document, in fact, that Cardinal Taviani had produced already, and which laid out effectively the traditional doctrine of the Church, and had as... Um, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre noted like 15 pages of footnotes referencing the magisterium of the church. Side by side now with this document which teaches the exact contrary and with no references to the church's magisterium because it's simply novel. Right. And basically, as uh, the two of them uh, at a certain point were standing at, each, uh, at the same time 
talking at each other. You know, like you are simply wrong. I mean, I'm putting in a very right. low level, but right. you know, you are wrong. You do not know what you are talking about. And then you had not more than that. Even you had this division amongst the cardinals. So you had ten cardinals on this commission, and so five of them supported Cardinal Bay, and three of them supported Cardinal Ottaviani. You know, and and then they had a vote throughout the commission, and it was about fifty-fifty for either document. You know, and as I think um, Bishop Tissier de Malaray points out in his biography of Archbishop of February, he kind of lays this out. Um, the very fact that the Secretary of Christian Unity had existed for only two years was entirely novel in the whole tradition of the Church um, that represented already a victory on behalf of the Secretary of Christian Unity, effectively. Wow. Um, now, one last comment about this before maybe moving on. Um, that Secretariat, at the, after the Council begins, and to be precise, 11 days, according to Father Vilken, 11 days after it began, um, John the Twenty Third transforms it from a secretariat into a formal commission with the task of producing documents to be considered by the Council Fathers. And he does that, Father Vilken implies that he did that in order to prevent, let's say, the Council Fathers from having any say on who was a member of the commission, leading to the fact that Cardinal Bea had his hand-picked crew, they'd been working with men like Father Congar and what have you, um, and that that couldn't be altered by the Council Fathers. And that commission is going to be incredibly important, in fact, because it's going to produce some of the most, we may say, influential texts. Dignitatis Humanae, it's going to come from that commission. Um, Unitatis Redintegratio, which is on ecumenism, is going to come from that commission, as well as Nostra Aetate on the Jews, non-Christian religions. Mm-hmm. So in other words, that work that Cardinal Bayer does leading up into the Council is then going to spill over into the council all and for the principles etc that he takes on which are clearly uh, ultimately um, very untraditional right wow now having looked a bit at that secretariat um there's also preparation taking place on a number of different levels and in the background because while that's we may say it's certainly what the Secretary of uh, Christian Unity was doing was underground work in many respects. It still had this veneer of being official, since it had been set up by the Pope and what have you. But at the same time, there's a lot of work going on in the background. And here I'd like to just give a quote by Father, or not Father, but Yves Chiron again, where he notes that, uh, and again, this is coming from his biography of uh, Paul VI. He says that the work of the preparatory commissions would be in a certain manner mirrored by propositions and projects undertaken by French and German-speaking theologians. Thus, as an example, in May of 1959, one of the first, the theologian Otto Karrer, wrote a memorial on ecumenism in the next council. Significantly, he addresses this memorial to the bishops of his own country, Germany, to Monsignor Charrier, showing up again, charged with ecumenism in the midst of the Swiss Episcopate and Cardinal Montini. So he's already presenting things and in a very unofficial capacity. And again, you can compare that to what we just saw with that um, unofficial preparation of the Doctrine on Religious Liberty. You also had uh, some attacks on the, uh, the preparation that's produced. There's a very interesting passage in Iota Unum by Romano Amerio. He has this remarkable comment. So he's talking about what occurs on the very first day of the council. Um, And I'm sure that'll be discussed a little bit more in detail later on, but just very simply, you had um, some of the German and French bishops more or less derail the council immediately. Uh, Cardinal Leonard, Achille Leonard from Lille, to Archbishop Lefebvre's hometown, the bishop who consecrated Archbishop Lefebvre as a bishop. He takes the mic right after the beginning prayers, stuff like that, and he reads a declaration with whose purpose is to completely change the makeup of personnel on the different commissions charged with drafting and revising the text that will be voted on by the fathers of the council. Now, okay, so that happens during the very first day of the council. But clearly, it was prepared in advance. And 
So Romano Amerio comments that with respect to the declaration that Cardinal Leonard wrote, or I read at that time, we now have an open confession of this repudiation of the council as we originally conceived from Father Chenu, one of the spokesmen of the modernizing school, a liberal progressive theologian. The eminent Dominican and his brother in the order, Father Yves Congar, who keeps showing up, were upset by their reading of the preparatory commission's texts, which appeared to them to be abstract, antiquated, and foreign to the inspirations of contemporary humanity. And they took action to get the council to go beyond this restricted compass and to open itself to the world's requirements by persuading it to proclaim a new orientation in a message addressed to humanity at large. The text to be put forward in council, so this document that was read by Cardinal Leonard, was approved, according to Romano Amerio, by John XXIII, of course by Cardinal Leonard, Cardinal Garon, will be very important in the history of the society later on, Cardinal Frings, Cardinal Dopfner, Alfrink, and Montini, and Leger. So a bunch of cardinals from uh, Germany, the Netherlands, France, and then Montini. Cardinal Montini of Milan. Hmm. But then he goes on. This is even more interesting. He notes that there even seems to be a conspiracy proved to to derail the council by what the French academician Jean Guiton relates of someone told to him by Cardinal Tisserot. So, just as a by way of aside, Jean, Jean Guiton is a personal friend of Paul VI. Cardinal Tisserot was the dean, in other words, the oldest of the cardinals uh, at the time, and he was a Frenchman. So when showing Jean Guiton a painting made from a photograph which depicted Tisserot himself and 600 cardinals, the dean of the Sacred College said, This picture is historic, or rather symbolic. It shows the meeting we had before the opening of the council, when we decided to block the first session by refusing to accept the tyrannical rules laid down by John the Twenty-Third, it's a pretty strong statement. Wow! And to the extent that it's true, certainly indicates that there was a pretty concerted plan. You know, whether one wants to call it conspiracy or not, it's really irrelevant. But it's certainly a pretty concerted plan to shift the focus. Of the council. Now we can also see that by some of the action of, let's say, the Dutch episcopate, which is part of that Rhine flowing in the Tiber. So the Netherlands is also on that river, if I'm not mistaken. At least it's close. Um, so Father Vilken, in his text, notes that um, in July of 1962, this uh, the Central Preparatory Commission had basically finished its work, and Monsignor Felici, secretary, sent the first seven documents, uh, schemas, to all the fathers throughout the world. When the Dutch received this, they were displeased, and they got together, the bishops got together, and decided to put forth a critique of the order and something of the documents themselves, and send that to other bishops throughout the world. What they ended up doing uh, was having Father Schillebeek's write their little observations, etc., and their critique of both the order and the subject matter. Father Schillebeeks, who had been, um, in his own right, a very notorious theologian, and who would later be the author of the Dutch Catechism that would be outright heretical, effectively. So, good person to choose. Right. And what they, they, they presented these documents, in fact, when bishops arrived to Rome. So there was a, a serious effort to uh, influence other bishops, to change the order and, in fact, rewrite some of those uh, early documents which dealt with Revelation, which dealt with this, the Church, etc. And they argued as well that the Constitution on the Liturgy should be seen first. Um, and again, like I mentioned before, it's the only document really of the, of the essential, uh, produced by the preparatory commissions, that um, was more or less under the influence of the progressive theologians from Germany and France. And it was the one that was most acceptable to them. And this, this work, this, this kind of stalling tactic or you know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, 
uh, this is this is definitely going to play out. You know, we'll, we'll see next time with uh, yep. with Father McGilvery at the end of the first what the first session of the council. I think I have the terms right. The first yep. year of the council, yep. um, not a single schema was approved. Nothing, nothing not came, came out of it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Would you say it's primarily because of these these tactics that happened at the beginning? It's absolutely because of them. Because effectively, that two years of work was more or less effectively dropped mm-hmm. on the first week of the council. Uh-huh. And when when I talked about that preparation to uh, be able to control as much as possible who would be on the commissions in the council to. Uh, um, by the European alliance, by the, uh, those groups in France and Germany, uh, German bishops, it was precisely in view of being able to recreate more or less from scratch documents for the council fathers to consider. Wow. You know, and so as a result, it's not surprising that they didn't have anything effectively to do. Again, right. the Dutch were successful to the extent of reordering the 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 priority of documents to be considered. So the first one to be considered would in fact be on the liturgy. And even there, of course, there was a lot of attempts to change because of, um, well, it's just a slow moving, moving process. Uh, so we've looked at the, let's say the, the work of the Secretariat of Christian Unity. We've looked at now to some extent these, these efforts on the part of uh, liberal theologians and even cardinals to attack the structure of the council and the preparations that have been made. And perhaps one last thing it might be of interest to look at, and again, this goes directly back to what we were talking about with John the Twenty-Third and his emphasis and the atmosphere that he helped to establish in the church. So you have, during these years leading up to the council, a, a fairly concerted effort to rehabilitate a lot of suspect theologians. So, and there's just a few examples might help illustrate that some of which do take place a little bit before the immediate preparation of the council, but it's, I think, instructive because it shows the, the attitude uh, both of undermining a lot of the work of Pius XII and also setting the stage for these theologians to play a role in the council. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, in, in the first place, you have um, then Cardinal Roncalli, who, in a way shows his colors by doing what he can to praise Mark Sanye, who may be remembered by your listeners as the head of the Sion in France, which was a Democrat, Christian democratic movement, which in the end was condemned in rather no uncertain terms by St. Pius X as mm-hmm. deviating from sound Catholic doctrine. Now, he dies in 1950. So at the time, Cardinal Roncalli is the papal nuncio in Paris. He's right before before he gets sent to Venice as the patriarch there. And he writes a letter to Mark Sonnier's widow, stating that, um, praising Mark Sonnier and his ideas, and saying that when he first came into contact with um, Sonnier's ideas as a young priest in 1903 and 1904, he found him as a source of inspiration which is a strange thing, considering that almost immediately thereafter, you know, about seven years later, he's condemned in no uncertain terms and his right. ideas as being contrary to the faith. So you have that. And again, it's just a, it's a mindset looking forward. It's probably perhaps for that reason that there's an anecdote apparently that, again, I don't know, it's one of those anecdotes is often repeated. It's hard to verify exactly, but that when uh, Cardinal Roncalli was elected as a Pope, he opened his own dossier. It's got to be kind of cool to be the Pope. He's like, oh, I wonder what people thought about me. <laughs> and he found that he was, in fact, at least on some measure, suspected to be a modernist, mm-hmm. you know, and partly probably for things like this. Then also you have Monsignor Montini, who, yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting person. So before he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Mon, uh, Milan, actually, uh, he was made the Archbishop of Milan by Pius XII, who pointedly and noticeably refused to make him a cardinal, even though Milan, being the largest diocese, was traditionally a cardinalatial see. So, for example, Carlos, Charles Borromeo, um, what have you. And um, 
part of the reason for that, he was, he was in part had run afoul of Pius XII prior to that, though he was the Undersecretary of State for Pius XII and one of the two most trusted of his uh, collaborators, together with uh, Monsignor Tardini, uh, later Cardinal Tardini. And while he was the Undersecretary of State, he was very friendly with a whole host of progressive theologians. So, um, for example, uh, just one illustration of that. So, during 1950s, that's the year that Pius XII publishes Humani Generis, which, broadly speaking, is directed against the new theology. Right. Potentially, though, being inefficacious because it doesn't descend to very concrete, this person, that person, and these are the steps that must be taken, etc., etc., etc. It's just very general. These things are kind of wrong. They can't be taught, whatever. Right. Anyways, you, there's a uh, Jean Guiton, again, to come back to him, relates a conversation he had with Cardinal Montini, well, actually, Monsignor Montini at the time, in which he was lamenting Umani Generis. And Monsignor Montini is like, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You know, it's just, a, it's just a warning. And I assure you that I'll make use of my influence to make sure that he doesn't proceed any further. You know, in other words, two concrete condemnations of persons or what have you. Yeah. Wow. And at the same time, Cardinal Montini did a lot of work to try to prevent certain theologians from being condemned. Even Jean Guiton, he wrote a work on the Blessed Virgin Mary, which was very ill-viewed at the Holy Office. But Jean, um, uh, Monsignor Montini tried to prevent that from being condemned. There's also a very interesting, again, it's just in that general line, after he's been made a um, uh, Bishop of Milan, Archbishop of Milan, in 1956, little incident where he, he calls together, it's actually kind of an interesting thing, he calls together this huge mission for the whole of the diocese, trying to revitalize Catholic life with very limited results, in fact, unfortunately. But as part of that, he invites to give various of the, the conferences, what have you, in various parishes throughout the city, a priest who had been condemned by the Holy Office. <laughs> so, uh, again, Father or Yves Sharon comments, this priest, Don Matsulari, was condemned by the Holy Office, forbidden to preach outside his parish in 1954, and forbidden to write in 1956. It advocated collaboration of Catholics and communists. And Cardinal or Archbishop Montini is like, hey, why don't you come preach? No problem. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and then maybe as a last note here, and in a way, perhaps most important is, and there's a lot of work, and unfortunately there's a great deal that would have to be said about that. But just perhaps as the, the final fruit of that, you have um, at the Central Preparatory Commission a number of experts attached to be as consultors or what have you. And amongst them, you had a number of priests, theologians, who had likewise been censured by the Holy Office, for example, for the Congar, for the Rahner, mm. for the Dulabak. And it's, it's interesting because Archbishop Lefebvre you know, notes this and it's like, that's odd. <laughs> you know, and he goes and he makes a comment you know, in the general um, sitting, like, look, you know, we have these directives that the experts should, of course, be orthodox. They should you know, have the mind of the church, what have you. It does not seem that all the, the members that we have here would really fall under those criteria at all. Right, right. <laughs> and... Although nothing was said by Cardinal Ottaviani at that session, apparently, or according to Archbishop Lefebvre, Cardinal Ottaviani met him afterwards and said, look, I completely agree with what you're saying, but what can I do? The boss wants them here. In other words, John the Twenty-Third. So he clearly, at least according to Cardinal Ottaviani, had made his mind known that he wanted these other theologians also to be able to give their input. Men who had certainly been um, suspect, and in some cases, outright um, condemned under certain circumstances. So, and, and these are the same, you know, fathers Kungar and Rahner, and we've we've heard of, heard these names before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Father Bormo about the yep. new theology. These are yep. these are those guys who were, again, not explicitly condemned by Pius the Twelfth, but their ideas certainly were. Mm-hmm. And now they are just let let right into the inner workings of the preparation of the council. Correct, correct. You know, so again, it's you know, so you have these two streams, you might say. Mm-hmm. 
On the one hand, what we saw more in detail last time, this great deal of um, work done in an official capacity that does make an effort to, uh, let's say, uh, take into account the views of bishops, and which is by and large, partly as a result of being under the guise or the leadership of many curial officials who, for the, by and large, are fairly traditional at that, still at that time, by and large, um, produces work which, in fact, would potentially have been quite solid. Right. As we saw with Archbishop Lefebvre, he thought that it would uh, very easily have lent itself to a healthy and useful council that would quite likely have um, been done in the time frame that John the Twenty Third apparently anticipated. John the Twenty Third uh, kept speaking about the idea that you know all the council fathers would be home and everything would be done by Christmas of that same year. Which, as we've already commented, and you'll see more in detail next time, nothing at all was done right. by Christmas of that first year, right. and that's in large measure because of this other stream of let's say. Um, heterodox theologians working together, whether it be in the biblical field. I mean, Xavier Wren talks a great length about uh, the battle that the Holy Office had with the Biblical Institute in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and which is kind of a microcosm of these two worlds fighting with each other, and which ended by John the 23rd causing the Holy Office to back down and more or less, you know, in a Roman way, apologize. Um, and Xavier Wren's an interesting person to kind of read. I haven't read a ton of him, but he's clearly liberal and very much, very much for the the progressive theologians. He's like, oh, let's get those Roman curial traditionalists. Ah, oh, it's great. <laughs> um, and whether it be in the liturgical work or in the Secretariat of Christian Unity, um, or just let's say even within the official organs that those um, either cardinals or bishops working at cross purposes and behind the backs of a number of their colleagues, all setting the stages up for what will happen at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, which is where all these bishops come together. They see very briefly work that's been prepared for two years and then jettison it, you know, leading to um, com more or less completely refashioning all these documents entirely. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating time and one which, at the same time as being very intriguing, is tragic. Because, um, unfortunately, the enemies of tradition, those who uh, were at odds with what Pius XII, Pius XI, and Pius X had taught, had a much greater preparation in the sense that they knew the battle was coming. Right. And they, they were prepared for it in a way that conservatives weren't. For example, this European alliance that was formed before the council in its germ, was working from day one. What Archbishop Lefebvre would eventually be a part of, the Chetus Internationalis Patrum, doesn't get going until after the second session. You know, mm -hmm. they're just outmatched, now classed. Right. But, so. In a sense, I, I made a comment at the very beginning about Pope John XXIII almost maybe being naive, saying, you know, everything's great, everything's optimistic, no big deal. In a sense, you can almost kind of turn that on its head and say perhaps the conservatives were – I mean, I, I don't want to say that they were naive, but they they probably had no idea that this could even happen. This, this, oh, something think, like this hadn't ever happened before. So, yeah, they were maybe naive, but at the same time, who could predict this? Mm -hmm. No, I think that's fair. And, you know, Archbishop Lefebvre has a comment, in, or at least as quoted by Bishop Tissi de Mallory at the big, in his biography at the very beginning of the council, where he says that, in his opinion and in his assessment, when you had these first steps going out, the majority of the council followers at that point had a sense that something was profoundly off. Mm -hmm. But there was really a, no more than that. It was just a sense something's off, but we don't know which direction it's coming from right. deeply, nor where it's going. And as a result, completely, even if they were, let's say, deeply desirous to fight, which probably most of them were not, unfortunately, they wouldn't have known where to start. Wow. That's, um, it's really sad uh, because, like we saw in the last episode, things were looking really good. Things were looking like they were going to be orthodox, traditional, and, um, and now, because of this, you know, this surreptitious 
behind the scenes workings. Now it's it's all going to be destroyed. Yep. Indeed. That's a uh, warm, fuzzy way to end this episode, Father. Thank you. <laughs> well, this the series on the Christ and the Church. I mean, right. we're expecting everyone to, you know, into you know, with lollipops and candy, cotton right, candy. Right. No, but that was All fascinating. Right. Thank you for going through it with us, Father. We appreciate it very much. And uh, we're going to be then uh, working with Father McGilvery on the course of the Council itself. And I'm not sure when we have you back next, but I'm sure we do at some point or another. So I'm scheduled for something. I forget Father. what. Right, sounds sounds great. Thank All you, right. Father. Have a good evening. You too. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 18 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 19, we'll be welcoming Father William McGilvery as we start a three-episode discussion on the course of the Council. In the first episode, we'll look at the calling of the Council, the first session, and the ongoing efforts by bishops in France, Germany, and the Netherlands to effectively neuter everything that was traditional. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5 or $10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.